Good morning. I'm so glad that you guys have chosen to worship here this morning, whether online or here. Um, Why don't we do this just to start? It's super important when we come uh, to the Lord to learn. Um, We obviously have just engaged in a time of worship, and and worship really is about this understanding of just like the, the gates to the very presence of God being opened, and we're invited in. Right? And so you don't come into the king's presence without an offering. You don't come in without humility. And I think it's super important for us just to take a moment and t- maybe in the stillness of your heart, you might be here as someone who doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. Super glad you found your way here. Um, in, in these next moments, I just want you to consider, um, is it possible that the creator of all the universe is speaking to me this morning? Okay? And he is, okay? That's like spoiler alert. But um, the second thing that I want you to do is just to be asking, what is it that you want to say to me, Lord? Okay? What is it that you want to say specifically to me through these songs of worship, through this message that's about to be preached? What is it that you want to say to me? Because um, if you're here and you've had a relationship with the Lord for a long time, which is, we can grow so accustomed to the ways of the Lord that we're almost not even inspired or in awe about the fact that we get to open God's holy word preserved for all time for us. We get to sing about the character, nature, and love of a God who loves us despite, despite our many significant warts and flaws. We get to do that day in and day out. We don't worship just on Sundays. And so if you're here this morning, I just want you to just humble yourself Um, and ask the Lord, what is it that you're trying to show me? How are you speaking to me? And what is it about your glory or about your character that this morning I most need to hear? Because I believe regardless of what I'm about to say, he'll speak to you what you need to hear. This is how our God works. He, He speaks specifically and individually to our own hearts. And so just, I'm like, we don't want to rush, right? Like, Running into God's presence and running out of his presence are some of the most foolish things we can do. So why don't we just take pause here, and I'm going to give you guys just a little bit of time. And if you don't want to pray, totally fine. But if you do, and if you want to grab someone next to you, go for it. But I'm going to give you some time to just seek the Lord, prepare your hearts, and then we'll dive right in. Father, we humble our hearts before you. Your word says that you are the great and mighty and awesome God. You also remind us that what is man, that you would be mindful of him. So even even now, we recognize our smallness. We recognize our inability. We recognize our low standing. 
but you have lifted us up. You have been gracious to show us your love through Jesus. You have saved us when we call on faith in the sacrifice of Jesus. And so right now, we just invite to convict us. Your word's very clear that uh, your Holy Spirit reminds us, encourages us, convicts us, and ultimately draws us to repentance. So whatever it is that your Spirit's doing this morning, we say yes and amen. Do what you want to do with our hearts this morning, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. All right, we are, as Rick so eloquently put it last week, in a series on kings, maybe, right? So that's most likely my fault in terms of communication. But uh, the, the overall overarching idea was looking at first and second kings and talking about this idea of kind of leadership gone bad. And so uh, David was a king in the book of first kings. So Rick's sermon counts. Rick's sermon, just this idea of highlighting this understanding of repentance and restoration and what that looks like before a holy God. And so I don't want to go into a huge history lesson this morning because I'm not a history teacher um, and because uh, that's not the point. What I do want to do is just kind of frame the kings for us. So if you are... Um, familiar with your Bible, you know that there's books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you're like, those are sometimes some of the more boring books to read. I disagree with you. I think they're awesome. They've got some pretty great stories in there. But what I want to do is just kind of frame this understanding that in Second Samuel 7, kingdom had organized all the tribes of Israel into like one large group, and then that's where the nation of Israel arises, and then after this, kings are developed, and um, then kings rule all the way uh, until they're exiled because of their idolatry. And, and you're thinking, okay, well, why is that important? It's important because uh, the rest of 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, actually, 1 and 2 Kings in your Bible shows up as two separate books. In the original Hebrew manuscript, it's not. It's just one long scroll. And it's the same with 1 and 2 Chronicles. Again, one long scroll telling the history of the nation of Israel. And then when Israel divided, Israel and Judah were two separate nations. And they tell the story of those two. And so the reason I say that, in, in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see parallel descriptions. Sometimes the same story about Jesus told from four different vantage points. And that's what's happening in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. There are overlapping stories. You might feel like, man, I read this somewhere else. And the odds are you probably did. There's, and there's little details in each one that are more pertinent to the audience that they're writing for. And so um, today we're looking at Solomon. And, and Solomon is David's son who becomes king after him. You see, uh, he's at the center of our story. In, in, in 1 Kings 1 and 2, you can go there to um, 1 Kings. We're going to be in chapter 3 most of the day. In 1 Kings 1 and 2, we see how Solomon rises to power, and, and we see David's failing health. And then there's just some weird stories, right? Like, let's just be, uh, like, fully honest here. There are some stories in Scripture that just, like, make you straight up uncomfortable, um, I'll be the first to admit it. When I read David is like failing health, he's described at this point in his life as a man after God's own heart who really tried to please God. And David spends the latter half of chapter 2 in 1 Kings basically saying to Solomon, I want you to murder this dude who tried to come after me. And he goes after all these vengeance of his enemies. And you're like, man, that's really strange. Why would he say that? And part of the reason why is he's helping Solomon to understand that there were certain commands of God that he had given him that he ought to obey fully. 
And so David is saying, I want you to finish what God asked me to do. There were people who were wildly against God, and as a result, they were wildly against me. So make sure you take care of that. Um, And so you see some of those stories happening, but the shining moment for Solomon really comes in chapter 3, where he has this dream. And in the dream, God says, hey, what what do you want me to do for you? And Solomon requests wisdom. And just by way of pause, don't we need wisdom? We're going to walk through a little bit of what wisdom is today, and and the big idea that I want you to walk away with will really capture it, but don't we need wisdom? I mean, just think of our world in the last, like, 10 years, and just think, there are so many things for which there is not a script. There's so many things that I just, there's not a, I'm raising a teenager right now. Oliver's going to be a teenager in, in July. That'll make two teenagers in our house. There is no script for raising a teenager. I'm not sure if you know that. But there's like, there's like nothing anywhere that says this is exactly what you need to do. I'd really like that. I'd really like like a list of rules to follow or a very simple like just straight down from top. Do all this, you can have a guarantee. If there wasn't, like, every parent in here is like, yes. <laughs> Give me a guarantee that my kids won't embarrass me. Give me a guarantee that my kids will follow Jesus, whatever it is. But, like, there's not a guarantee. that We need wisdom. And so what's interesting is Solomon has this shining moment in chapter 3, and he asks for wisdom, and God gives him all the wisdom in the world. Nobody else ever since him or before him had as much wisdom as him. But he was also a moron wildly promiscuous in his life and flaunting of his wealth. And you're like, well, why are we talking about it? Well, because we can learn from him. Okay? And in 1 Kings chapter 3, we see that. By the time 1 Kings chapter 9 through 11 roll around, we start to get this picture of Solomon where he is someone who just walked away from the Lord. He lost connection with the Lord And then the kingdom was torn from him. His family goes asunder. Things just go sideways. So it's just a reminder that wisdom is no guarantee. That wisdom comes by way of relationship. And you see this, it's foreshadowed in 1 Kings chapter 3, the very first two verses, where it says this, that Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Just a little aside, but the author is telling us um, there were all sorts of pagan gods that these countries around the nation of Israel used to worship. And the first and greatest command was no other kings, no other gods before me. And what Solomon did was he went and he made a marriage alliance with Egypt. Okay, now... If you know your history, Egypt and Israel don't have like the best relationship, okay? They were enslaved, Israel, by Egypt for like 430 years, and we're now hundreds of years from that, but like generation after generation after generation is telling the story that Egypt abused us, and Solomon's like, I think I'm going to bring one of them in here. I'm going to make a marriage alliance. Why? Because I want my kingdom to expand, That's the whole reason that's listed in the first two verses. And so even then, you're seeing a little piece of his selfishness because we know what happens when you make an alliance with someone. You can't 
avoid adopting their values to some degree. And this is what Solomon does. This is why that phrase, high places, is all throughout the book of First and Second Kings. You hear this phrase, he did right by the word of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed. And you're like, well, that's dumb. Why wouldn't you just do that? Quite that easy. It wasn't quite that easy just to say, okay, we're going to get rid of that high place. And so this is where Solomon goes awry, and he misses it. But in 1 Kings chapter 3, we have a picture of wisdom. And I would just say this, that I want us to really land on this morning, that wisdom is knowing what to do when knowledge isn't enough. Solomon had all the knowledge in the world, and he failed prolifically by the end of his life. You can read the sequence of his life where he writes most of the Proverbs, and they're awesome. And by the time you get to Ecclesiastes, who has essentially bottomed out, and you hear him saying things like meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. He's like a depressive poster child. All because he decided, eh, I'm not so sure that walking in God's ways is best. And so you're here, I'm here, you're Solomon, and I'm Solomon. We want to understand this morning, what is the foundation of wisdom? What's the pathway to wisdom? What's the goal of wisdom? So let me just read our passage. 1 Kings 3, verses 3 through 9. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. There's that foreshadowing piece. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love. And you have given him a son to sit on, this, on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? So the first thing that we see here is that the foundation of wisdom is love. It says that Solomon loved the Lord God, that he went and made a humongous sacrifice, that God had showed him great and steadfast love. That term steadfast in your Bible is the same word that is typically used to translate for covenant, that he showed him great and covenant love. Any married person in here knows if you've ever been through a hard thing and you're like still on the other side of that hard thing, that your spouse has shown you what? Great and steadfast love. That's the only thing that binds a covenant is great and steadfast love. And so the foundation of wisdom is just that. But I think what I, what I find so powerful is that it said the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. Now, Solomon never physically asked for it. Solomon didn't come up to the Lord and have this transaction where he said, God, I want you to give me wisdom. It, it was actually 
a dream. And you're like, well, I'm not so sure that that's significant. We can't rely on dreams. What if I had a bad taco? Okay, get over it. In the kindest way possible, get over it. Because God speaks how he wants to speak, regardless of what you're comfortable with or not. And that's something we need to hear. We need to hear God uses dreams. We need to hear God uses vision. We need to hear those things. Why? Because Solomon would have missed everything in terms of wisdom if he would have said, bad taco. If he would have just thought it was no big deal. But he didn't. He reckoned, though it was a dream, that it was like an actual conversation, a transaction that happened, and he worshipped as a result. The foundation of wisdom is worship. It starts with love, but love from God to us, and then return to him in worship is what shifts your perspective. We don't really grasp this all the time, but like, What's your focus? What is the thing that gets you most like undone the quickest? And then I'll tell you, that's what you're worshiping. That's who you're worshiping. If, if a person says something to you and your whole day is ruined, it's found the object of your worship. And so the foundation of wisdom has to be worship. You see it laid out, and I'm not going to go there just kind of for sake of time, but if you look at 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through all of chapter 2, you see these, um, this phrase that I think is so helpful where it talks about how Jesus became wisdom. And I think that's important for us to see because otherwise we miss the power of God. Listen to what it says. I'll just read a couple of verses. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are about to bring to nothing, rather, things that are. And here it is. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen, you don't have two legs to stand on when you come into the presence of God. None of us does. I could be walking with the Lord for 50 years. You could be walking with him for 50 seconds. Neither of us is better off in his presence without Jesus. And so listen to what he says here. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So wisdom, first and foremost, I want you to understand beyond anything. Wisdom is not something you get you know. Wisdom is not something you get, it's a person you know. It comes by way of relationship. Solomon lost that. And it says he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I make a good decision that works out, things go well, and someone's like, dude, that was so amazing. How did you figure that out, Doug? I'm like, it wasn't. That's my boast. My boast is it wasn't me. It's Jesus. And so that's the, the whole picture here. Worship changes your perspective. When Solomon went and worshipped in 1 Kings chapter 3, that he went to offer a thousand burnt sacrifices. When was the last time you went ahead and laid down your whole herd for the Lord? <laughs> Like, seriously. Like, this, this, is the, this is the heart of worship, sacrifice. 
sacrifice, it has to mean something. It has to cost something. If I wanted to propose to my wife and I went to one of those little stupid games at uh, Chuck E. Cheese and I dropped a quarter in there and I pulled out one of those plastic rings and I'm like, babe, you mean the world to me. And I <laughs> get down on a knee and I pop that on her finger. How much you see like, uh, <laughs> really? Worship is sacrifice. It costs you something. It means that you, you make inconvenient decisions. It means that you raise high the name of God over and against what opposition you may be facing. Worship is sacrifice. And the foundation of wisdom is love. And it's driven by worship. So because the foundation of wisdom is love, God's love for you, not your love for him. Because that's the foundation of wisdom, let me just ask you this question. What if wisdom is not based on your perfection, but on God's kindness? Nasty little subculture within the church that says basically wisdom is longer years with the Lord. And I just disagree. When the church exploded in the book of Acts, it says that they took note of the apostles, that they were ordinary, everyday, uneducated men, but what? They had been with Jesus. And we already established that Jesus is wisdom. The very person of Jesus is wisdom. So the presence of Jesus is what brings the ability to make wise decisions. So wisdom always comes with a question. God approaches Solomon in his dream with a question, what shall I give you? Wisdom does a lot more listening than it does talking. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Like, well, give me an example. Okay, statistically speaking, if you read all the Gospels and all the examples of Jesus, he asked over 300 questions. Do you know how many he answered directly? Like somewhere between four and eight he would be the most maddening dude to hang around with. Because like you would ask a question and he'd be like, I don't know, what'd you think? And you're like, come on, man, I just wanted an answer. And he's like, well, I'm not really about that. I'm more about you being in my presence and learning from my character and my nature than I am just handing you an answer. Getting back to the wisdom is knowing what to do isn't enough. If knowledge was the prize, then we should just keep having Bible studies. Right? but I'm not sure it's making us wise. So let me just ask you, truth to life then, what are you asking God for? And are you willing to start with worship? Are you willing to start with a transformational understanding of how you think? Because when you worship, it changes your perspective. There's some verses up on the wall and, and maybe even in your bulletin, I can't remember. I don't do my own notes. <laughs> um, there's, there's John 4.24, this idea of word and truth, right? We all love the truth, right? We're a church that highlights and exalts the truth, and we love the word of God. Yes, we're a church that gets a little squeamish when we talk about things of the Spirit. Let's be real. We're a church that's like, I don't know if the Spirit can do that. <laughs> yes, he can. It's okay. Like, as long as it's lining up with what is already revealed in Scripture, then we are safe. We're just not comfortable. There's a big difference. And we need to hear that. Some of us need that, like that just to tear apart our boxes. 
okay? And so we're sitting here and we're going, okay, we need to worship in spirit and truth. So then you might be thinking, well, how do I apply that? Maybe as you're reading the Word of God, you're asking this question, Spirit, Word of God, what do you want to reveal to me today about your character and nature that's so wonderful that I can exalt you for? Because as I worship, my perspective has changed. Or you could look at Psalm 95.6, talking about this idea that like we come and we kneel and we bow down. It's this idea that like, I'm yours, God. I'm yours. Or you could look at uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the goodness and kindness of God. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, the oxymoronic phrase of a living dead thing. Like, well, I don't like being dead. You don't like being a Christian, okay? So you're, you're dead to sin but alive to Christ. And this is what we need to hear. And this is what transforms our thinking. As I come to him and, and I offer my body as a living sacrifice, my every little yes of obedience to him, then guess what? It's, it, there, there's something in there that says, then it says your mind will be transformed so that you will know the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You don't get there without worship. If all you ever do is just want an answer from God, you're going to miss the heart of God. Verses 7 and 8 talk about this pathway to wisdom. I just say that wisdom comes to the hungry and the humble. It doesn't come to the arrogant person. Um, we were hanging out with Mike and Jessica Ellis last night, and Mike actually once in a while likes to drop these little truth bombs that are kind of fun, and he'll get a little nervous because I said this. But like, um, we, as we were talking, Mike goes, I just think um, that you're in a dangerous place when you think you know everything. And I said, you're right, Mike, I've never been there. I'm sure it's an unsafe place. <laughs> but the reality is, when we feel like we know enough or too much or all that we need to, we're in a dangerous place of forgetting what happened with Solomon. But in chapter 3, he uses this phrase where he says, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And you're like, what does that mean? It basically means I got no idea what I'm doing. I'm totally inept. I'm totally incapable. And I am in need of your grace and mercy. I need your help. And, and then he also, he, he looks at this idea of God being fully able while he's not. And then he talks about your people who are great and too many. And here he's saying this idea of like, when he says your people, he's saying everyone and everyone belongs to you, God. Okay, let's just take that for just a moment and just think, what would that look like for how I carry out my life? I walk into the office tomorrow and I'm doing work and I've got like my office supplies there and I've got to make a phone call and I've got to work through a number of different tasks for my boss and I've got resources at my disposal that I have to spend for the company that I work for. And he says, everything and everyone belongs to you, God. That's Solomon's words. And so I'm sitting here going, okay, if everything and everyone belongs to God, what's that mean? Guess what? It makes you like the greatest bank teller ever. Like you're just a transactional person handling and stewarding the things that God has given you, the ones given you. Now, I'm going to be honest because we have a place in this culture, in Tremont, and even in this church, 
where we really love our children. I think that's awesome. Sometimes we love our children more than God himself. You're like, no, no, that's not possible. It is. (laughs) I remember one of the most convicting things to me years ago when my daughter was diagnosed with cancer is coming up against this concept of that phrase, my daughter. How fantastically arrogant that I would call her my daughter and not God. Because when I say it's mine, then the first question that arises is, why would you do that to me? I then make the suffering about me. I miss the whole point, and wisdom then is lost. But if I understand that that my daughter was given to me as a gift to steward and give back to God as an offering. Like, God, she's yours. I know what you want to do. Like, I want to partner with you in giving her the best parenting that she can have. But if I say she's mine, I've just took from you what is yours. I've just put myself in the position of God. Now, I, I know I'm not alone in that. But just think of it. You see, if the pathway to wisdom is truly through humility, then it's good to ask questions. The average four-year-old I read the other day asks 437 questions a day. (laughs) Right? And most of you moms are like, I heard about six of them. Because you're able to like multitask, and most of us dads are like, I heard every one of them. <laughs> like, like, I heard every one, and I had to answer every one because we you know, can't multitask very well. But there's this understanding of like, what does it look like? The other day, Pierce came to me, and he climbs up on our riding mower, and he's like, Dad, teach me how to drive. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So I got on, there's like a little hitch thing on the back and I stood on the back of the hitch thing and I held onto the thing and I put him on the seat. I'm like, you know, here's how you run the throttle. Here's how you do this. Here's the brakes. He can barely reach it. He's like stretching out, right? But I rode with him around for a little bit and then I hopped off. And I said, I don't want you to go faster than this. And when you come, I want you to go back around the swing set this way and, and then park it. And it reminded me, when I was young and learning how to drive the lawnmower, my dad taught me. And he did the same thing, um, where he just kind of, you know, here's how you go and all that stuff. And then as soon as he left, I was like, this thing goes way faster. (laughs) My dad was like, what a stooge. He should have known this. (laughs) And so he leaves for work, and, and I'm told that day I need to mow the yard. We have a big yard out in the country, right? And my dad comes back, and I am going so fast. There's grass, not even being mowed. I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, when you go too fast with the mower, it's like, what's the point? And my dad gets out of his car, or his, his work van, and he comes over, and he always kept this little, like, old uh, golden and wooden uh, pocket knife. He digs out of his pocket, and he's like, have a seat. I sit down, I'm like, oh, no, here comes the cone of shame, right? Like, you shouldn't have driven that fast. And he gets out his pocket knife, and he draws an arrow right next to the throttle, no faster, right? And he goes, and I'll know if you went past the yard, we'll tell the story. And I, and I think the most helpful part about that when it comes to the pathway to wisdom being uh, humility is that you need to give responsibility with presence. You're like, well, how does that equate? Jesus did it for us, right? He says, look, I, I, I want you to make disciples who make disciples of, like, of all nations, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what's he say? And I'm with you always, 
to the end of the age. He doesn't give us a responsibility then without his presence to accomplish it. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he, he says, look, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? And I'm with you. Like, he, he's, he's the power and presence of Jesus in, in the Holy Spirit to live within us so that we can do what he's asking. And so just, I don't know, some basic practical ideas. Parents, from a truth-to-life perspective, fold your kids into what you're doing. Are you making a meal? Let them mix the ingredients. Are you mowing the lawn? Grab your, your son or your daughter and teach them how to do it. You change an oil in your car? Teach them. Teach them how to do what you're doing. Because as you're making a budget or fixing a leaky sink, your kids are watching. You can either open the door and invite them responsibility with presence, so that way when they make a mistake, there's a cushion of love to fall back onto. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what to do when knowledge is not enough. Your kid will learn what happens when you broke the sink you were trying to fix. <laughs> and they'll learn, like, what happens when my knowledge didn't work? Because they'll see it modeled. Kids, ask to be a part of what's happening in the home. Pester your parents to do with them what they are doing for you. Singles, ask older people how something that you are still experiencing. We have plenty of singles in this church who are still even in their 20s and 30s, and we're saying mentor, right? Just because someone is married doesn't mean they arrived. I'm serious about that. Your greatest aim in life is not to get a spouse. Your greatest aim in life is Jesus. And, and, and if you miss that, then you're going to think that you are not of value when you're with other people. But there are plenty of us here who don't have a spouse who can be of value to the kingdom of God because you're willing to sacrifice and mentor someone. So sing, we need you. And just lastly, I think even Jesus needed the ministry of presence when he carried out his greatest responsibility. When Jesus goes to the garden before he is to be arrested and wrongly convicted and then put on a cross for you and I, he, he brings a couple of disciples along to pray for him. He still needed the ministry of presence. He wanted people there around him, near him, praying for him, even though he was carrying out the greatest responsibility that nobody else could. It's awesome. And so I can see I've already ruined myself for time. <laughs> How about... Because I have a burning to preach this last part. <laughs> if you need to go and grab your child, I will not be offended. If you need to go to lunch, that's totally fine. Um, but I, I can't get past what the goal of wisdom is. It'd be horrible to preach all this and miss that. So you will not offend me if you leave or if your kid comes wandering in. I'd love that. But let's look at the goal of wisdom. We've looked at the, the foundation of it being worship. We've looked at just this idea of the pathway in humility. But the goal of wisdom is in verse 9 where he says, Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For govern this your great people. That term... 
when he says, an understanding mind. That's translated for us Westerners who think that the mind is like the pinnacle. <laughs> and so he's, he's actually, it, it would almost be better if that were translated, a hearing heart, because that's literally what it would be rendered from the Hebrew. And so what he's saying is this, that the goal of wisdom is a hearing heart that knows how to honor God in complex situations. Okay, I'm going to give you an opportunity, and, and you're going to participate, because I like participation. What is a complex situation that we are facing in our world today? Don't be shy. COVID. What? COVID. COVID. What's another complex situation? China. China. Yeah, what else? Yeah, immigration. Gender confusion. Yeah, gender confusion. I can pick my gender, right? That, that's what we're hearing. That's the, the complex situation, right? Any other complex situations? What? <laughs> a complex situation is certainly political figures. Yeah, it's helpful for us to realize they're all human, and believe it or not, God loves him just as much as he loves me and you and the next person. Have you ever thought about the, the theological one? This is kind of interesting to me. If I have a sin that I struggled with, there are many that I would know in this church who would, who would give their right arm to make sure I was restored and brought back and my family was kept safe, right? But if I started to explore or struggled through understanding some level of theology that's not native to Northfield, sometimes that can be a little bit less kind. That's a divisive issue. Okay, let's get a little bit closer to home then. What are some other ways that we have complex situations that we need wisdom for? What? Family. That is like a ball. Huge ball of yarn, family. People, and you're like, oh, you're heading to a family reunion? And they're like, yeah. And you're like, oh, so it's going that good. Okay. Um, yeah, family. Parenting. How many of you have faced something at work where either ethics or complexity played a role? I, I think we all have to some degree. So there are many situations where we need to understand how to honor God when there is no script. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, because I want you to see the connection with worship here. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces Good And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, in Luke 6.45, treasure, what or who you worship, is actually something that's going to come bubbling out of your heart. You see, wisdom is action. Wisdom is something that is like, you're going to do something with what you know. Knowledge you can, you can attain knowledge by going to school, um, but accumulate over a lifetime of walking with the Lord. And here's the part we need to hear. From a truth to life perspective, most of us want an answer from God more than we want God himself. And you hear it come out in how we talk. You see, knowledge hides from those who only want answers. 
That's why when I was younger, I often heard when I would do something really dumb, I would often hear, boy, that wasn't wise. Why? Because knowledge and, and what I know doesn't necessarily equate to anything. Wisdom communicates how I'm acting with what I know. It would be a lot different, and think of how awkward this sounds. Um, that wasn't knowledgeable. When was the last time a parent said that to a kid? Boy, that wasn't knowledgeable. Like, no, we always say that wasn't wise because it's unwise to act that way. I think the church has been more satisfied through the years with knowledge than with wisdom. And that's why I would just say this to wrap us up. Your Bible is not enough. Your Bible is just not, and and you're like, whoa, 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 Doug. The Bible's our whole foundation, and it is. But your Bible, simply the knowledge of the things contained within it, without any sort of a dynamic, intimate relationship with its author, is what gets us into the greatest trouble. It's what produces schisms within churches. It's what produces divides within nations. It's, what, it's when we decide that we think it's okay to know the Bible and not be acquainted with the God of the Bible. You see, in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, and you can go there and look this up later, um, there are instructions that are given for when there are to be kings. And one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, the king must get a copy of the law and write it for himself. So you can picture then the kings busting out Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the first five books, the law. And he would sit down and painstakingly with quill and feather and ink, he would sit there and he would write out the whole entire law. And then it talks about how he is to read it every day and obey it every day. And, and, but the whole idea of what it's communicating is you need to know the heart of God. And that's what happened with Solomon at the beginning. And then it didn't. <laughs> and things went sideways. And then we see the same thing happening in John 5, 39 and 40. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he's rebuking them because they think the Bible is enough. And he says, um, you search the scriptures because that you think in them you possess eternal life, but you refuse to come to me. And that's the part where wisdom misses it. Wisdom, wisdom would actually say, you search the scriptures because in them you find the story of me and how you can have life through me. And you've come to me. So wisdom is knowing the person of the scriptures. And then you see Paul say that same thing in 2 Timothy 3.15 where he basically just says, hey, look, when you were young, you knew the scriptures. And then what's he say? The scriptures make you wise. I love Asian. It doesn't say the scriptures make you knowledgeable for salvation. You can know all about salvation but never do a thing. But when you're wise for salvation, you actually do something with it. So wisdom is knowing what to do when there's no script. And then 1 Kings 3 enters, end, end, sorry, ends with that famous story where two prostitutes each have a baby. And, the, and one of the babies dies in the story because one of the prostitutes rolls over and actually suffocates the baby. And since the babies are born so close together and they're sharing a house, there was nobody there to verify the evidence. They bring the case before Solomon, first case. And, and they're like, hey, you got two women, he's got no context. How in the world could he know? There's no script, there's no chapter and verse for that one. 
And instead, what happens? He says, hey, bring me a sword, and I'm going to cut that baby in half. And you're like, well, that's kind of twisted. <laughs> and, and it doesn't look wise, right? It looks unwise, like, whoa, 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 what are you doing there, Solomon? But immediately, what happens? It's revealed whose mom is actually the mother. Give that child up. I don't want any harm to come to that child. And the very last verse of 1 Kings 3 says that all Israel feared because they knew the wisdom that Solomon had was to do justice of the Lord. What we're looking for, that wisdom, the execution of what we know when there is nothing listed for us to do. So let me pray for us as we leave here. Thanks for your patience. God, um, we know you um, and we can struggle at times to carry out what you've asked us to do. But in the power of your spirit, we just ask for wisdom uh, to not just be something that we have like up in our head, like we know what to do, but like, th there's courage and boldness to carry it out. So walk with us now, helping us to be wise as we step into this day, this week. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.